Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no tell. On this episode of In the Know, I am so excited. Stephen Wolfram, legend, scientist, entrepreneur, leader, author of a new kind of science, MacArthur Fellow, and so many more things. He created Mathematica, his company Wolfram Research over the last 30 years has made some of the most powerful software used by scientists, researchers, and engineers. But today we talk how he gets things done. And I found out that he's my spirit animal. Cool. So Stephen, I brought you a present. Ah. I brought you this little hedgehog. We were emailing and I was so what flattered that you even remembered me on this topic of productivity. I guess you remember a lot of stuff, but I also probably spam you a bit. And if you're a consumer of some of these emails, you know what I'm working on and thinking about. (laughs) And I read your post with a lot of interest. It is uh, a family of personal productivity hacks that I think someone will, you know, make products. Well, my present for you is a question and a topic I wanted to explore with you because we were sort of exchanging messages about the more meta topics about productivity and Uh getting things done with people. And this is a topic of a lot of interest to me. I don't know, just because I like to make things work better in the world. And because I am not able to solve all the problems that I need to address myself for a variety of skill, time, focus, and personal qualities, actually. This hedgehog nail brush, which I found in the shop just actually yesterday, uh, spoke to me, and I wanted to ask you uh, about the fox and the hedgehog. Is it an idea you've spent some time with? Are you familiar with? Or I'm familiar with it. I mean, it's, it's a question of, I mean, this question of how to get things done with people and how to get things done mm. oneself and so on. Mm. You know, in my life, I've had different theories at different times about, you know, should I just do it all myself? Should I do it with other people? I'll give you, give you a couple of examples. So back in the early 80s, I was working on basic science and this whole sort of complexity theory yeah. direction. You were an academic scientist. Were you at Caltech or MIT or something like that before you I started was, the company? Uh, at Caltech and then yeah. at Institute in Princeton and, and uh, then yeah. in Illinois. And uh, I, was a, I was a, I think it would be fair to say I was a very successful academic. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, um, you know, and I, I started this field basically of studying complex systems with simple components and so on and my plan A was this is a really interesting field, there's lots of people who should work on this I'm just going to build the infrastructure and get and crowdsource it and get everybody to work on it so I started the first journal in the field, I started the first research center in the field and so on I said okay everybody come work on this stuff mm-hmm. it was not a good fit for me because it was, uh, you know, I was like raising money for other people to do work. Mm-hmm. And I said, this is kind of crazy. Better strategy for me is set up the right infrastructure for myself, the mm-hmm. right tools, the right personal environment, and then just go barrel at it myself. And, you know, that big new kind of science book that you have there, mm-hmm. that was the result of 10 years of doing that. And it worked really well. I, you know, I had a few assistants and things, but it was mostly just me doing it myself rather than crowdsource the idea. Now, you know, in, in um, I mean, sort of the crowdsourcing is the extreme version of, of uh, getting other people to do the work. But the, the intermediate version is like companies where yeah. it's like uh, you're in charge, but there's lots of people doing stuff. You know, I've been, it's funny because you know, I've run my company for 32 years now. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, I really run it. I'm the CEO. I don't have a, you know, a person who... Right, I mean, but you the, say it that way because people don't believe you. <laughs> they read a post like the post you wrote and think, how is it possible that this guy doesn't resemble the other CEOs I know? 
It yes. must be that he's delegated all the real things to some COO, and this fellow is just reviewing things once in a while. It's very clear also from the post that that is not the case. You are deep into many yes, topics yes, around yes, the company. Yes. There's no other reason you'd be going for walks in the forest with your laptop open and the conference yeah, yeah, call in your right. ear and all that. Yeah, yeah, right. No, I mean, I, I you know, what, what's happened in, in terms of, you know, I have terrific people at the company. I would say on the technology side, really, really super strong on the, on the business side. They're, they're good, but they're, you know we don't have as quite as, as strong culture in that area. Mm-hmm. But um, the um, the thing that sort of an interesting question for me is is you know do I sort of maximally delegate? How much do I delegate? How much do I not delegate? And actually, this has changed in the last probably five or ten years. I have adopted what is again one of these outrageous CEOs shouldn't do this kinds of theories. Yes. Which is well, first point is my what I've come to believe after these years is. If there's any function that I couldn't do myself, it won't get done. Properly. I mean, yeah. I might not have time to do it. I might not have, you know, bandwidth to do it. But if I don't understand how that function could be done, yes. it'll be done. It won't be done well yes. at the company. Is and that a new idea for you? That's one you've come to lately, or it's something no, you've always. No, no. I've, I've always. I mean, you know, my general theory of companies is: on day one, the CEO does everything. Exactly. And progressively, you know, you hire people who can take away certain mm-hmm. functions. I mean, but people, you know, when you talk to I don't know, people who know about the theory of entrepreneurship, they'll say, no, you have to form a team and you have to get experts who do this and that and the other. And, you know, that was what happened in my first company, which I started when I was 20 years old. Mm. Um, my, you know, plan A there was, I was at that point a 20-year-old physics professor, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what the heck do I know about oh, starting Let me go companies? find a business guy, a yes. professional CEO. Yeah, exactly. That's what I did. Dangerous. Uh, yes, it was hopeless for me. I mean, it was um, the field yeah. of entrepreneurship. To be fair, I would not summarize with the generalization that you should go find the experts in all no, the different no, things. Absolutely and that, that these that, days is not the view. Yeah, I think yeah, it's a much closer to view, and it, that is the hard work, hard earned learning of your work and others. I think some of you guys fell into this hole. Let me get an MBA to help me. Yes, right. Do this no, thing. I mean, in our company, actually, it's a terrible fact that in the 32, 33 years we've been around, I don't think that somebody with an MBA has ever, in the end, succeeded. Wow, which is wow. Um, which may be a sign of you know that that may be an indicator of some cultural something about, about the culture. Company. Well, I mean, I also have my biases and I try to be very open. But I'm a philosophy PhD, and when I'm in the room with an MBA or even in front of a room full of MBA students, I do not find myself matched with the type of people and the type of thinking where I can be most successful. And if I'm in charge, these people have not typically been my best counterparties. You see, what I find is that. Is that it's like, can you just figure stuff out? You know, in the, you know, in the sort of, I wouldn't generalize too far, but sort of the MBA-ish world, it's like, there's a process. You can, yes. you know, you just run the process. Well, a pattern to be applied. And right. the hardest problems do not have a library, a design library that you just yes, go do something. Right, the hard exactly. problems, the ones I'm interested in, and the ones that will have the biggest impact on the world are not simply the minor machinations of some other thing sitting on a shelf. Right. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, they're almost shocked that you could just say, well, just give me the facts and I'll figure it out and make a decision. Yes. It's like, but there is a difficult, process? But there is a difficult emotional and personal aspect of this in my experience, because I have been known to say in front of my people, there is no topic on which I will simply expect, I, I will simply accept your expertise. I may come to trust you and let you do many things, and I will begin with that bias of trust. However, on every topic, if I ask a question and I am not satisfied with what I get, it's going to be my way, not yours. And this is not a very polite thing to say. I have revised a little bit my way of landing that message, but... Yeah, I, I, I never end up actually having to say that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, one of my theories about things is, you know, uh, it's a piece of probably personal arrogance that I'm sort of, 
you know, smart enough that I can understand anything, so to speak. And mm -hmm. if somebody's telling me, oh, we should do this and this and this, mm -hmm. but it's like, I just don't understand. You know, explain this to me. Yeah. And if I really, really don't understand, I'm not going to agree to do it. Yes. Because it's, you know, I, I, I have a high enough opinion of myself, I suppose, that yeah. I think I can understand anything. Yeah. And, you know, given the effort. Well, you're a very smart and learned person, and certainly it is true for you, but the thing I actually, and perhaps you say this to others, I, I don't know how generous you are in estimating others, but I think probably everything is understandable. And if you can't get yourself to a spot where you can understand it, then it might be their fault, meaning the other sure. person's fault in explaining with clarity. I mean, I don't know your field and I don't know physics very well, but when philosophers go hang around in physics departments, some of them sneer at us, the physicists, and others reach a hand across and we find a way to do some work together. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I slowly understand is that, you know, in these different areas, every area has its own sort of culture and way of thinking about things and way of understanding things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you don't get it on day one. I mean, I've, I've been involved in enough different areas that I do know, I think, the signs of when I am getting it and when I'm not getting it. Yes. And sometimes I will say, I just don't know. You know, you're asking me to make this decision. I simply don't know yes. because I don't have a good... You know, like this happens sometimes in some international market type things. Yes. Where it's like, I just don't know the culture of this country. I don't know yes. whether, you know, and we can go ask a bunch of people. Yes. And I don't even know necessarily how to interview them because the cultures are different. Yes. And you were giving me the package of uh, your bizarre CEO traits. Yeah. And right. I was interrupting you as we yeah, were going. Yeah, no, but no, perhaps I, there's a few more you want yeah, to lay yeah, out. No, I mean, I think that another thing that is, uh, is kind of the diving down phenomenon. That is, you know, there are five layers of management or something and there's a you know at some point some piece of code doesn't work and somebody says something is impossible and for a while I was like the good CEO doesn't just dive down and ignore all those layers of management and just say I'll fix the code myself type thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. You respect the lines of hierarchy and delegate right. and all that sort of so thing. So about yeah. a decade ago I decided mm -hmm. to hell with it. There are enough things that are going you know where things go wrong and where frankly I'm experienced enough that it's going to take me mm -hmm. you know an hour to do something that we'll be messing around with for months. Um, and I might as well just use my skill to do it. Okay, so I initially thought, oh my gosh, it's gonna be disastrous. You know, people are going to, the whole organization's gonna fall apart. Turns out it didn't happen. And, you know, I think people appreciate the fact that, you know, I'll, if I see something wrong in a network, you know, I'll call our 24 seven site monitoring people and say, you know, what's going on? What, you know, this seems to be, you know, I can look at this thing and this yes. and that and the other. The phenomenon I had not expected is people, I think, appreciate the fact that the CEO cares about what they do and might even know something about what they do. Mm. It isn't the phenomenon of, oh, I don't have to do my work because the CEO can just do it for me because they obviously, you know, it's, it's plainly clear that isn't the case. Right. But the fact, nor is it that they feel like they have to know a unique thing um, that, uh, you know, that the CEO doesn't know, so to speak. I see. I mean, another, okay, so another one of my weird traits, I suppose, yeah. is the thinking public idea, which is, you know, I've been doing now, I, I started doing it really in public with this live streaming stuff where, you know, we have, you know, I spend my whole time doing, you know, meetings with my people and so on. And it's like, we're going to figure out what to do in these meetings. And it's not like I will go off into the, you know, the back room and, you know, magically think about stuff and then come back and say, we're going to do this. It's like there's, you know, that thinking process is happening in an exposed way 
and you know I'm uh, and public means it's a large group in your company maybe sometimes it's really public if it's not a sensitive issue well so, so what it is no it's, it's usually I, I mean the, the group size will vary depending on what it is it might be five people it might be 15 people mm-hmm. it's not um, you know the um, what, what I've been doing the last year or so particularly our product design review stuff where we're kind of designing new features of our products you know thankfully we don't really have at least I don't think we have direct kind of competitors so to speak so it's not um, uh, so it doesn't really you know there's not an issue there I decided these meetings are really pretty interesting because they they typically vary from you know micro details of software engineering to big questions of philosophy and you know epistemology ontology type type questions and the people in my teams are really smart people and they have interesting things to say and what the heck let's entertain the world and live stream this stuff and so it's you know we're live oh, streaming cool. it on twitch and facebook live and so on uh-huh, cool and, and are people like are, you, are people reflecting back energy on you it's probably not 100 out of 100 that reply but do you get one out of a thousand that send you something interesting uh, yeah so what happens is we have a live you know we have a, a, a chat you know text chat going on and you know somebody is watching the text chat and when there's interesting stuff on the text chat, they'll send that to me, mm-hmm. and um, you know we'll talk about it in the meeting. And actually, it's cool because a bunch of very sophisticated users of our products, experts in these different fields. Right. When we bother to announce that, when we manage, I shouldn't say bother to. <laughs> when our, when we have our act together enough to announce what the topic is going to be yeah. a reasonable time in advance, you know we'll get a bunch of real experts in this topic, and what they have to say is often quite useful and interesting. And I think it's. Um, and it's it's nice, you know. It's kind of nice for us to see people saying, "Yeah, this is really an interesting feature." You know, we really care about this. Yeah. Or being mystified, you know, why are you guys doing this? Yeah, that's so cool. Um, so it's a customer panel in some ways, but yes, they're right. also just huge experts and very smart separately, and they're giving you other ideas. Yeah, right. I How mean, about I- gathering information in general? I mean, you were speaking about the idea that occasionally you have to double click all the way through the layers and then solve the impossible problem. And yeah, I, I've had the experience also, if you show up as the superhero, you do, you do need to do it in the right way. There's another thing you do, though, when you get all the way down there, is you get information. And Dalio has a nice line about this called tasting the soup. Even the greatest chef will wander through the kitchen and taste the soup that's half complete. Sure. And that, that has two sides as well, and I wonder what your well, your experience Well, I mean, yeah, I, I think it is important to know, you know, this is the point. Do you actually know what goes on in all the parts of the company? And insofar as I do, I think we run fairly well. You know, there are parts where I don't really know. Like for a long time, our ERP system, I knew nothing about it. It's just like, we have this big globulous ERP system. It seems to more or less work, you know. And then it started to be, we're bringing out a new product. Okay, it's gonna take two weeks to set up all this stuff in our ERP system. No, this is crazy. You know, we can't have this, you know. This is, and we're paying a ton of money to some enterprise software vendor this big ERP system. So a few years ago, it's like, no, we're out of here. We're going to build our own. And um, so that's been a very interesting, actually, because we have you know, some good sort of software engineers and architects who hmm. really know our technology stack. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're reinventing how this kind of stuff works. And this time, I actually understand it. Mm-hmm. And I, it's like, I understand kind of, you know, and it, and it will make sense. But yeah, I mean, this... Have you been keeping a list of your quirks? I don't know if you would call them quirks, but what you think are some of the distinctive patterns that 
you see in yourself or that you try to modify from time to time in your managerial style. For example, as you know, the Ray Dalio book is more or less his little list of, and I mean, it's readability one might debate, but it is a long list of very lovely ideas that he accumulated hard-won knowledge. Yeah, I haven't been cataloging them as, as perhaps I should have done. I mean, it's, it's kind of because they, they come up on me rather organically, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like, and I realize, you know, like, like for example, in my company, so I'm an idea generator. Probably two-thirds of the things we do are my idea. Mm-hmm. Okay? I, you know, my goal is to have that number be as low as possible, so to speak. Um, but it is your distinctive contribution, let's say. And you tool your business around that role, I suppose, for right. you. Rather than giving yourself like monumental complex projects that need to be refined from 99 to 100%. Yeah, I mean, so, so but you know, one of the issues is, okay, so I generate an idea. What happens? Right? How does the organization absorb the idea? Right? So back in, when I first started the company, you know, I decided, actually, I, I decided that a couple of years in, you know, the company was doing well, customers were happy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I could see that, you know, the idea, the rate of injecting ideas was going to make the whole thing just fly apart because it's just like we can't absorb this number of ideas. So I decided, OK, I'm going to take a sort of pseudo sabbatical and go work on basic science. Ah, and uh, To let the machine be, process the yes, inputs. Right. And, uh, you know, at that time I had a pretty good COO that I brought in who who was not good at doing new stuff, but he was pretty good at, you know, mm-hmm. taking what was there and kind of stabilizing the thing. And How do you feel about that self-identity? Uh, I'm an idea generator or this other guy who is not good at doing new stuff, but pretty good at processing stuff. Uh, I find as I look around my company and, you know, at this point we have hundreds of people and soon it'll be thousands and it's hard. I've never been in charge of that many people. I've started other companies and usually quite early someone very wisely takes me out and puts someone else there. Well, this time it's me, and my plan is to go the whole way. And uh-huh. the type of business that it is, is it, it'll be 100,000 people in, in the years right. to come. So this is tricky, and I, and I wonder about it. And, and I feel, as you were describing, I'm listening to you with quite a lot of self-awareness in judging your some of the patterns of your behavior and the outcomes and how you might like to modify that, and apparently in a huge openness to change, since you've just described, well, five years ago I was you know, 50 years old yeah, and yeah, decided yeah. to just change. That's amazing. It's not a common thing. But when I look across to my colleagues and, and I make my own pattern matches on them and I'm like, ah, this guy's like me and has some problems. We'll need to change X, Y, Z. This other person is the execution, whatever, applying those patterns on people and asking for change without perhaps uh, privileging one status or the other. That's a package of things I wonder about on this. You, you know, some- one of the things, I, you know, I happen to be interested in people. It's a trait independent of other, you know, technical interests and so on. I've always been interested in people. Like, I'm about to go to my almost 50th elementary school reunion. I've never been to such a thing Oh, before, lovely. Which will be fascinating because it's my longest baseline kind of study of what happens to people. And the fundamental overarching fact is people don't change as much as you might think they change. The circumstances change that people do not. I'm curious for your nursery school cohort, though. I wonder yes, if there yes, were many I've... tea leaves to have read at that time. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I certainly, I could... I could expound on this. I keep track of people, and I, you know, I, I keep them kept in touch. And so okay, on. so as a student, so, a scholar on people, tell me how yeah, do you, yeah, no, how no. Do you so, work I mean, the people the first, machine. The, the first thing, you know, I find people interesting. I try to understand people. You know, my theory about people is, you know, I end up with very talented people. I end up with projects I want to do. Then there's this kind of puzzle of, you know, can you fit the people into the puzzle of what you want to have done? Mm. I have found that it's much more, you know, sometimes it's like I have this very specific, you know, 
need and I want to find a person who fits into that need but much more often I'll find talented people mm -hmm. and then you know I'll realize oh there's an, it's, it's something you know this is sort of a aha moment oh this person is going to be great at doing whatever and you tell them this and they're like oh that's interesting I never thought about doing that I see. so shape the problem space you present to them to match their Right, Talented and I mean, you know, for me, it's very fulfilling. You know, I've been responsible for some defining the careers of a lot of people because I've said, gosh, this is something I think you might be good at. And it turned out I was right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they have a great time and it's not something they'd ever thought of, you know, getting involved in. And I think that's a, well, the other thing about people, you know, I, I say one of my management achievements after managing people for what, close to 40 years now is not having become irreducibly jaded about people. Because, you know, you might think you have seen every pathology, every crazy thing that people might do. But no, there's another one. <laughs> and, you know, I've, I've, at this point, I've just gotten, you know, I just find it kind of amusing that I see yet another. The other thing that happens realistically is above a certain scale of company, there are a few single points of failure. And that makes the whole people thing. You know, if you've got a company and it's got 50 employees, let's say, it's a very high stress in a sense managing that because there's a lot of single points of failure. You know, at, I mean, we have 800 people, so you know there probably are some, you know, somewhat single points of failure, but it's pretty dilute. Mm -hmm. And it's most, you know, things the organisation will not, it won't be, it won't fall on me to solve that, you know, to do that work if somebody quits. I mean, you know, the other thing I found with people, people, people like leadership. I mean, people, you know, whenever something, you know, weird has happened and I have to like, we're going to do this. People really like that, you know, let's just, we're going to take a definitive direction Yeah. doing this. And another one that I found is that, that, you know, I push people, you know, I, I would say I'm a, I'm, I'm very direct with people. When I like what they're doing, I tell them I like it. When I don't like what they're doing, I tell them I don't like it. In plain language, without emotion, do you get mad? You know, it's a funny thing. I've measured like my heart rate and my blood pressure while, and it never, it doesn't go up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I might appear to be kind of all upset, mm -hmm. but I don't think, you know, in some intrinsic sense, I'm not. I get, I get, um, I mean, what I have found is that people will say, you know, managers at the company talking to more junior people at the company will describe me as passionate. And that, you know, that's kind of the way that they describe the fact that yeah. I really care what the stuff works. I see. And, and but, it, but it could come off to a um, thin-skinned person or an anxious person as he's, he's mad, he's shouting. Yeah, but, but you see, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But, you know, one of my principles is mm -hmm. I will never be mean to the person. Mm -hmm. I might criticize the work they've done, mm -hmm. but I'm never going to, you know, it's not like you're an idiot. It's this is really stupid. May I submit to you something I learned about in this last one year, and it may seem boring, but it is a thing that I decided to take on board and I have changed. About a year ago, uh, January last year, we were running a company with 30, 50 people, something like that, and we were headed for hundreds. And, and I noticed that we were having difficulty retaining certain types of people and recruiting certain types of people, women and minorities. And one of my sort of, I tried a few threads and some of them really worked well, but one of them was what I think is an important insight that the environment that you work in makes it actually hard for certain kind of people to show up and be there. They're a bit anxious. They've never been invited to the party before. Now they're here with all these geniuses and someone is very rough and very direct with them and just one failure is enough for them to fail. But me, I can walk into the room and be wrong six times and still have enough energy and momentum in my personal career and self-understanding that I might continue. So I started thinking about this and I ran across an idea. It's from some Buddhist monk. Maybe you know this guy, Thich Nhat Thanh is his name, some Vietnamese fellow. 
has a big following. And there's one line in one of the books. We tell people the truth in order to help them find a better way. Until about a year ago, I would tell people the truth simply because the truth was important. And it was on the basis of that that we could take some action. So, the work that you've done, thank you for it. I won't be finishing the meeting. I've spent two minutes looking at it and everything is wrong. Can you please go fix it and then we'll meet again? To sell someone that truth, the goal, if the goal is to help them find a better way, meaning for them to understand process, take on board, find a nice strategy, whatever. I, I started to revise my basic mode of interacting with people. I used to be very proud of how quickly, directly, and efficiently I could deliver the truth. And now I have invested a bit more time every single time to try to land it better. There are some people who understand me so well, and we work very fast. There are others with whom I do a bit more planning and more care. And I wonder your, what you're feeling. Yeah, about. yeah, no, I mean, look, I'm probably not... I get in, you know, I, I have sufficiently much going on that I probably don't spend as much effort uh, to do this as, as I might. I mean, you know, what I have noticed is one thing that's really nice about my company, it is very diverse in many different ways. It's geographically diverse. Mm. The types of people have very different, you know, they are, I mean, you know, even in our meetings, you, you kind of just hear a lot of different kinds of voices. And I think, and it's also interesting because the people are so geographically diverse, they have their own environment and they interact at the company, but they've got their own whole world that's quite separate from the company and that, you know, sometimes I'll know about, sometimes I won't, you know. It's like when some guy turned out, you know, he has a view of a volcano out of his window. It's like, okay, that's surprising. That's <laughs> and, you know, oh, and it's erupting. You know? <laughs> wow. It's a, yes. That's something different. But, but So on this little Buddhist line, I will return to you at some time in the future. No, After, but I, I'm interested yeah. in this, I mean, because, yeah. you know, what I've found is I've worked with people for years, and there'll be people I've worked with 25 years, I've never had an aggressive conversation with them, right? And there are other people where I've worked with them for a long time, and many conversations are incredibly aggressive, yes. and everybody's screaming at each other, right? Yeah. And I found that, you know, I adjust my persona yeah. to the people I'm dealing with. And that can be complicated in a meeting with many people because there might be one person where it's kind of a, you know, very, very aggressive and there are other people there who are like, oh my gosh, this is so aggressive, you know, I'm not used to this. And that's complicated and I don't think I have a great solution to that. I think that, um, uh, you know, what I found, I have found, I am a believer in my own rationality in the following sense, that if I get really upset with somebody, there is a problem. It's not like... Right. Your um, feelings are telling you something. Yeah, right. It's not like I'm, you know, it's not like I'm irrationally just I don't like the person or whatever else. It's, yes. it's like, you know, I don't even... The, the parameter of do I, quote, like the person, it's not really something which enters. You know, I, I do I like the person's work? That's that's really the issue. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I pride myself on getting on with all kinds of different people. And it's not really a, a you know, it's not really the thing. But, but what I found is that that, um, you know, what's what's wrong? Well, maybe the person is in the wrong job, or maybe the person is just not a good fit for our company. And it's like, and it doesn't, you know, I've, I've you know, I don't really take, it's like when people tell me with tech, you know, software and so on, they say, oh, that only fails on your computer. Oh, like, uh, nothing on. drives me more crazy. <laughs> oh, right. It's, it's like, I won't, I'm not gonna listen to that. <laughs> yeah. That's just not right. Yes. And it, it's similarly, you know, you're only mad with this person because you were upset today. It's like, no, that's not, you know, that's not what's happening. Yes. It's, it's, um, but, you know, I found that this question about how do you, uh, you know, who do you bet on? How do you bet on them? How do you support them when you've, when you've betted on them? Um, it's, uh, I don't know, I, I find it, you know, it's this giant puzzle. 
putting these pieces together. And sometimes, you know, so, so an example of a thing that I've noticed, so, you know, I've, my life is about doing software releases and so on. And so I've, I've talked to my team many times about, will we ever have a completely calm software release? That is, okay, so, and, you know, in fact, okay, so in the, in the, in the spirit of good theories, we have the theory we will never have a calm software release, but we're doing one right now. It's almost done, and it appears to be calm, but it's never happened black, before. Black swan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I mean, but and, and the question is, why do you never have calm software releases? Why is it the case? You know, we're doing new things that never been done before, mm-hmm. and I finally figured out why this happens every time. Mm. So what happens is there'll be groups, and they do a particular thing, and they're good at doing their thing, and they have a rhythm of doing their thing. But when we're putting together something that's never been put together before, there are inevitably gaps in between the groups that know what they're doing. And inevitably, you have to kind of put pressure to push people into those gaps so that they get it done. And that's, you know, and it, it, um, uh, but anyway, so having having said that, you know, we concluded, you know, we we have a, a meeting actually every week about, you know, software releases and so on. And one of the topics I brought up is, Will we ever have a calm, calm software release? Mm-hmm. We basically concluded no, but now we have, having concluded that, now our first major release after concluding that. Well, the analysis apparently calm. that went into diagnosing what makes calmness impossible yes, has right. revealed for you the drivers that need yes. to be addressed. Yeah, exactly. So on this topic of, of how t- people work together, uh, it's obviously a huge topic, but there's this guy, Sandy Pentland, who you may have run across, I, MIT I, guy, I've and he has a, a bunch times, of amazing yes. papers that... Uh, structure in groups and patterns of their interaction can be a predictor and driver of, causally a driver of, that team's performance. So similar people in two different teams, one managed one way, the other managed another way, A does better. And some eye-catching, like there's a call center experiment where they did an intervention in the call center on the left-hand side of the call center. They made people take their coffee break all at the same time instead of doing a staggered release where they keep some people on the phones the whole time take people on the coffee break all at the same time, call handle time fell by 30% in the intervention group. That is eye-catching. And so in your own company, and your own teams, and it's basic stuff. It's like, don't let people interrupt in meetings. Make sure they are engaged. Make sure that there's some kind of equal participation time of air time in the meeting. Some of these kinds of little low-level yeah, behaviors. Really believe it. I mean, those particular ones, I mean, so, so you know, I do meetings where it's basically audio conferencing plus screen sharing. That's my, and I, I never do video conferencing because otherwise you have people who are, you know, I, I have I have overstuffed meetings. Typically my meetings, I have a certain set of people there and a certain set of people on call for the meeting. Sure. And so, you know, not all the people, you know, will be talking about a bunch of stuff. And some of the people who are there, not everything that, you know, we might dr- drill down into some particular detail that's irrelevant to most of the people on the call. Yes. Or something may come up and it's like then the rule is the people who are on call have to actually be available if somebody, yeah. you know, calls well, No, but you're running two meetings there. You're running a meeting for the core problem-solving group and pres- presumably you, you, they are engaged and you're also running an informational meeting which is either an FYI or a, if, in case I ask you a question, please tune in. Yes, and those people right. are basically in the other room. I mean, they're watching on television yeah, yeah. broadcasts. Yeah, right, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess that the, I mean, right, but this dynamic of, uh, like, make sure everybody can get their say and so on, mm. um, you know, I, I, to me, that's... It, a, to me, it's also a revolting idea, I, I must tell you, honestly. I mean, in our philosophy seminars and whatever, you know, the idea that everyone has a chance to give their valid objection, I thought that was nonsense. I came to the world of business with that exact mindset, and I continued. Only those with merit who could argue for their point, those are the ones that we would pursue. And time to time, I'd tap on someone to hear some other information. 
in the Pentland work, and I'll leave it to you for a later time, but in the Pentland work he found that when he added unskilled bad people to teams and they participated, that team did better because the quality of the high-quality people which with knowledge, answering the dumb question and reasoning from first principles on different topics, improved the overall outcome. I leave it for you for okay. another time. It's I'm, not, you it's see, not a recommendation. I think that's a... I think it probably depends on what kinds of people you end up hiring. Because I know that you know, in my company, I am, you know, I'm very big on people who, who have the, you know, who will continue to have the thinking apparatus engaged at all times. Mm. I mean, there are people where they're brilliant at some particular thing, but when something a little bit away from that comes up, yes. the thinking apparatus is just disconnected. Let me return you to my gift for you, the hedgehog. I want to get your yes. thoughts on it just for a couple minutes. Yeah. So it's a famous line from Archilochus, the Greek poet. Apparently there's only one line from him, so I don't know how he's a poet or whatever. Maybe he had a reputation, but his work is not preserved. The line is, <clears throat> the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. And it was picked up and popularized by Berlin, Isaiah Berlin, who was a philosopher. I guess at Cambridge? Oxford. Oxford, sorry. I, I mean, no he offense to you. my mother's And he is such an incredible inspiration. And he's one of these people that did not write huge totemic works. He wrote little papers and wandered around in intellectual history. And, and, and he was opening a, a, a paper on Tolstoy to try to compare Tolstoy to some of the other giants that have roamed the earth. And the point that he made about Tolstoy is in, let's say, you know, War and Peace, you can go in from one scene where he's uh, describing the coquettish behavior of a young woman in front of an officer at a salon, and then just a few pages later, you've zoomed all the way out to the sweep of history and Napoleon's armies are crossing Europe. Tolstoy, in his view, was a fox. Now, by contrast, and maybe there are others like him, there's Shakespeare, and and, 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 and in science. And then you have described yourself, actually, much to my surprise, as a fox. And then sitting on my desk here in front of me is this colossal opus that you have produced, which I would have thought is the sort of thing produced by the hedgehog. The hedgehog goes deep, builds a huge internal structure, very complex with many different inner workings, and as you described among some of your colleagues, is an expert on one thing and just doesn't care about one thing six inches to the left of it. This is their field, you know, plasma physics or whatever. I'm curious for a little more reaction from you on that because I find it an incredibly powerful type indicator as I travel the world. I mean, foxes, I mean, hedgehogs. So, so, you know, what I try to do is build matrices, probably hedgehog-like matrices, into which many fox things can be put. So, for example, you know, my main sort of life works of things like Wolf and Language, it's a, it's a big framework, and any, you know, there'll be individual ideas that I have. And, you know, what I've discovered is that one sort of knits between these things. That is, you know, one has a big framework, one has a bunch of individual ideas, Gradually, those knit together, and then one comes up with another level of framework. I mean, it's the same thing that I've ended up doing, and I've been lucky enough to kind of alternate between doing basic science and doing sort of technology. And what has ended up happening is, you know, I do a bunch of basic science. It informs what technology is buildable, build the technology, then that informs what can be done with basic science. I mean, these layers. So I, I would claim that the, you know, my, my version of this is probably try to build these frameworks that are hedgehog-like, and then... You know, and I find it fun and invigorating to do sort of fox-like, many-idea type things. So you dive into the cells, you solve one cell at a time of this giant matrix you've created, modulating behavior. It's very important to have the matrix because the fact is there are ideas that I might have, like, you know, like I write a blog, okay, and I put random stuff like my personal productivity thing into that blog. There's a certain set of things I can put into that blog. Mm -hmm. And... um, 
it's it's nice and broad. If, you know, in, in Wolf, like when I was writing this big new kind of science book, there were a certain set of ideas that just found their way into that book. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, when I was writing that book, I actively didn't think about. You know, there were things which came across my radar, which are like, yes, I could think about that, but no, I'm not going to do that because I'm focused on this big matrix. But the matrix had many cells, as, as you said. Right, which can reward you. One of my, uh, you know, I don't know, mentors and most admired philosophers, this guy named John Perry from Stanford, uh, he has this idea of structured procrastination. If you set yourself up with a big enough matrix, you'll never be bored because there's always something to go snack on and make progress on these different little cells. Yeah, so I think it's a good, it's a good point. I mean, I, look, the thing is that you know there are certain matrices that I have, and there are others that I don't have. For example, you know, if I was, if you were to say, like I don't know, when I was some, uh, I don't know, you know, some random invention that I might make, okay, you know, I could go off and you know patent, you know, make a patent and so on. I have no matrix. For yeah, I've got nothing yeah. to do with that. So your leverage on it is not where it would be if you stick it in the matrix, because every time you take a step in that matrix or in that broader plan, even if it's a little nibble, it's productive. It's some kind of exactly. visible output. You can, yes. It's a building block for future work, and in, and you know, in the end, it's the life's work. I mean, it is right. the sum total of all these things right. that you've knit together. Right. I mean, so so yeah. like if I was an you know, if I was writing academic papers, I mean, I made the decision. I'm not going to write any more academic papers sometime in the mid '80s. I've mm -hmm. not regretted that decision. Mm -hmm. You know, in the end, I you know produced. 1,200-page books, which have a much better or a much better distribution medium for 400 papers worth of stuff than all those papers would be, because there's a you know it's a the papers are a poor matrix for for delivering those kinds of things. I mean, this whole question about different types of people who are optimized for different things. I mean, I certainly notice in my company and so on. It's like you see a person and there's a certain time scale of project that they're optimized for, and you know the 15-minute ones. They are great for technical support and things like that. They are, you know, they will delight the customers every time because they can just like solve a problem in 15 minutes. Then there are the, you know, the two-year project timescale people, and uh, you know, it's always amusing if you give the two, you know, the, the two-year person a 15-minute project. It'll be, you know, for the first month they're setting up the framework to do the thing, and uh, you know, you have to kind of pick. And people vary a little bit through their lives, I think. Like I'm a, I'm a couple of year time scale project person mm -hmm. so I mean I, I, I do big projects I know kind of the rhythm of doing that I find it fun as you say to kind of snack on things and do the occasional like super fast project like I've done a lot of historical biography stuff and that's fun because it's it's very snackable you know it takes you know probably a, a few weeks of you know to go and try and understand I mean that historical biography activity is is really interesting in terms of understanding how people make things happen in the world because you know one of the things that is sort of the thing you might believe is oh there are these people and they come up with a brilliant idea one day that's that's never so i have this sitting on my desk as well this book idea makers i did not know about this is new or yeah, it's a couple of years old a couple it's, years. It's, it's, oh. it's um it's based on blog posts i've been writing for ages ah, I, mean, right. I, I, right. I i you know what i the thing I just find history interesting. I find people interesting. I'm curious about how things got figured out that we deal with today. And the question is, you know, one of the things is, is there ever flashes of brilliance that lead to big things in the world? Yes, and one my of the main great myths of Yeah, right. I mean, life. it just isn't true. And, yeah. you know, even historians often, you know, historians of science and so on, often don't really recognize the extent to which that's not true. Because they haven't seen, you know, to me, when I'm studying some random, you know, scientist of old, they, there's enough interpolation with 
experiences I personally had or experiences I've had with you know older scientists or whatever mm -hmm. that I can kind of see the pattern and I know when I don't know how this actually got figured out I know there's a path that took you know a decade or something because well, Stephen this conversation out. is my own investigation on this type of theme and so I appreciate very much you making time to chat with me it's been super interesting yeah, yeah. and I am you have inspired me already just in what you wrote to me a few weeks ago a week ago is um, I think I'm going to try to put it all together I'm going to try Ooh. to put together all your quirks and weirdnesses and find a few from, from others, but I want to stitch it together not into just a, a little list of random ideas, but I think there are some coherent theories and, and stuff like that Pentland work and some other things. Uh, yeah. Tetlock, and, and, you know, he's sort of famous for that super forecasting book. Um, I think we can go find the cognitive patterns that, that create this. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, you see, but the thing to understand, though, I think, is that, like, my company is a weird outlier. You know, it's a... And I don't think, you know, people come to work at my company... They stay there for years or something. They leave. They say the grass is greener somewhere else, and they come back. We have a lot of people who come back, really a lot. It's very flattering to the management. So that is amazing. Yeah. That, that people, you know, even if they say, oh, this is all messed up, you know, I, I know how to do this better. I'm going to go somewhere else. They come back. Um, and, uh, you know, that means that to me is another sign that we're kind of an outlier because, you know, it's a, it's a I mean, to me, in terms of what, you know, I like to believe that, it's one of the things that's important to me is that you succeed at the company by doing good work. It's not true at all companies. I mean, well, it's a, politics and other things. Yeah, right. But other, I mean, and, yeah. you know, the question is how do you, from a management point of view, how do you achieve that? But anyway, I think my, my point is it's not clear, but like my company is far from optimized for, you know, commercial effectiveness, right? It's not, you know, you talk about fact that you might have a you know a 10,000 person company I will never have a 10,000 it's not the nature it's a of matter it. of your own election but thank you Stephen yeah yeah